Welcome to the Western Vowel Podcast Series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice of the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Living Life with Gratitude and was given by Debbie Hoagland Salabucky on June 23, 2018 in Prescott, Arizona. Debbie is an early childhood educator and a mother who has led workshops on conscious parenting. She is an advocate for the wisdom of community life and author of Widening the Circle, Inspiration and Guidance for Community Living. Debbie Hoagland, Salabucky. I thank you all for coming. Um, I wanted to speak about gratitude because that's something I'm working on. And in doing my research, it's very interesting. Um, I have a spiritual teacher for which I'm very grateful, and he's passed away. But at one point, he he um, he was very studied and uh, once twice a week he would make dinner for us and then read to us from books he was reading that he felt were valuable. And his library collection grew, grew so big that he couldn't fit it all in his uh, living uh, quarters. And he uh, he gave out sections of it to people. And um, looking for my research, I pulled out this book, Gratefulness in the Heart of Prayer, which is by Brother David Steindl Rass on gratitude. And I realized it was one of the books he had given me. So it was really um, a wonderful reminding factor. And what he used to do was he would make these tiny dots in the margins. I don't know if anybody can see those. He would just make these really tiny dots so he wouldn't mess up his book. He wouldn't fold the corners or anything. He was very particular. Uh, but he, and then he would write down the page numbers on a tiny piece of paper, and then he would read to us. So I'm going to read to you from the same ones that he read to us and I think it'll be clear the value of those. And then also, um, I've been re-inspired about gratefulness because of the work of Brene Brown. Has anyone heard of her work? Yeah. So she is so inspiring. And she is a social researcher. And she has interviewed thousands and thousands of people on what she calls wholehearted living. So she wants to know what the elements are that make people who choose to live wholeheartedly in their life, like to fully engage in their life. And she talks a lot about shame and how shame stops us from living wholeheartedly. And these people, she said, it's not that they are without shame, but they are able to build shame resistance. So they don't buy into the whole shame game that our culture you know, really wants us to buy into. And those people who live wholeheartedly embrace joy. And she said that she did not find, she could not find people who spoke about joy who didn't speak about gratitude at the same time. She said she had to link them in her research because consistently through all of her uh, research, it always, she always found people that 
linked gratitude and joy together. So I want to share some of that with you and some other information. I think in all religious traditions, joy and gratitude are a central key element, you know, in just living a life, just living a life of fullness, as she talks about, or if you, if you're Christian, if you're Buddhist, if you're Sufi, you know, whichever of those traditions you follow, Hinduism, they all have an element about joy and gratitude. So, um, and this is um, from loosely based in the Christian tradition, although what he has to say speaks a lot to all of us. So feel free to interrupt or say anything you'd like to say. So I'm going to just share this. So the first chapter or introduction is Alive and Wakefulness. This book is about life in fullness. It is about coming alive. I could summarize it in two words, wake up. A poet like Kabir is able to say these two words with a freshness that makes us sit up. Kabir's poems have power. They wake us up to an aliveness we never thought possible. And this is a a poem of Kabir's. Do you have a body? Don't sit on the porch. Go out and walk in the rain. If you are in love, then why are you asleep? Wake up, wake up. You have slept millions and millions of years. Why not wake up this morning? In my own way, I try to get the same message across and people are hungry for it. Waking up is a continuous process. No one wakes up once and for all. There is no limit to wakefulness just as there is no limit to aliveness. So I, I think that really speaks for itself because it's, a, it's an ongoing process. It is risky to be awake to life. It takes courage. That's something Brene Brown talks about a lot. Like it takes courage to let there be joy. When we feel joy and we feel like deep love for people in our lives, we Often, I know I do this, I immediately go to like, what's going to happen to, to rip that away? What's going to, what's going to hurt me? How is that thing going to hurt me? That being vulnerable to such deep love. And it's like a rubber band effect that the more intimate I am with my loved ones and the more I snap back and, and react and protect myself from feeling that deep joy. So it is risky to be awake to life. It takes courage. We have to choose between risk and risk. We run the risk of sleeping through life, of never waking up at all, or else we wakefully rise to the risk of life, facing the challenge of life of love. As Kabir put it, if you are about to fall into heavy sleep anyway, why waste time smoothing the bed and arranging the pillows? (laughs) So this is about gift, which is interesting. Again, I really see that thread of vulnerability. And some of these things you might say are just about ordinary life, like how to be a a full human being. But I think that the ordinary life and our spiritual life weave together. I don't think they're separate things. So I don't think we can just talk about oh, this is, this is our spiritual pursuits without how does that show up in our day-to-day lives? So 
Why is it so difficult to acknowledge a gift as gift? Here is the reason. When I admit that something is a gift, I admit my dependence on the giver. That may not sound that difficult, but there is something within us that bristles at the idea of dependence. We want to get along by ourselves. Yet a gift is something we cannot give to ourselves, not as a gift at any rate. I can buy the same thing or even something better, but it will not be a gift if I procure it for myself. Gratefulness always goes beyond myself For what makes something a gift is precisely that it is given, and the receiver depends on the giver. The dependence is always there when a gift is given and received. Even a mother depends on her child for the smallest gift. Suppose a little boy buys his mother a bunch of daffodils. He is is giving nothing that he has not already received. His mother gave him not only the money he spent, but his very life and the upbringing that made him generous. Yet his gift is something that she depends on his giving. There is no other way she would receive it as a gift, and she finds more joy in that dependence than in the gift itself. Gift giving is a celebration of the bond that unites giver and receiver. The bond is gratefulness. We're reading from uh, Gratefulness in the Heart of Prayer. You know, we're talking about how gratefulness is in all the traditions, really. Gratefulness and saying yes to life and and joy. So just talking about the dependence and, and that that strings back for me to that vulnerability. Because again, when I feel joy and it's in response to someone else's gift and I allow myself to be grateful, then I allow myself to be the possibility of being hurt as well because they may not always be able to give in the way that I'm going to have an expectation. And so, but am I going to shut down and, and not be vulnerable and therefore not let in the gift that's given to really accept the gift? I have to be vulnerable to the person because it's like, I'm dependent on you in some way. And I am dependent on you just to the extent that I'm accepting this gift. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I can do everything myself and I can get this handled. But if I accept in your gift, then I'm saying in some way we're interconnected and I'm dependent on you. And in the future, you might not always be able to meet my expectation or be reliable in a way that is going to make me feel totally safe. Renee Brown calls it foreboding joy. So she's talking about like, you know, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop and you are, you're not being in the present, which again, in all the traditions talk about being present in the moment, but instead, you know, I'm putting a barrier in there by, okay, there's something's going to happen in the future. The interdependence of gratefulness is truly mutual. The receiver of the gift depends on the giver. But the circle of gratefulness is incomplete until the giver of the gift becomes the receiver, a receiver of thanks. When we give thanks, we give something greater than the gift we received, whatever it was. The greatest gift one can give is thanksgiving. In giving gifts, we give what we can spare. But in giving thanks, we give ourselves. 
One who says thank you to another really says we belong together. Giver and thanksgiver belong together. The bond that unites them frees them from alienation. Does our society suffer from so much alienation because we fail to cultivate gratefulness? The moment I acknowledge the gift as gift and so acknowledge my dependence, I am free, free to go forward into full gratefulness. This fullness comes with the joy of appreciating the gift. Appreciation is a response of our feelings. Our intellect recognizes the gift as a gift. Our will acknowledges it, but only our feelings respond with joy and so fully appreciate the gift. So I'm going to um, ask us to take a journal if you're, if you're comfortable with that. There's, uh, there's some over there if you have your own notebook. And just write down a couple of things that you feel grateful for. And this could be big things or little things. And um, my teacher used to say, it's not real till you write it down. So it's like, you know, I can think about these things. I can have all these brilliant ideas. When I put it pen to paper, I make, I make a commitment to that statement. And then if you would just take a moment and pick two things that you're grateful for. And if you'd rather not write them down, then just be with yourself about them or share them with someone else. Scarcity and fear drive foreboding joy. That's the kind of joy she was talking about. I'm like, no waiting. We're afraid that the feeling of joy won't last or that there won't be enough or the transition to disappointment or whatever is in store for us next will be too difficult. We've learned that giving in to joy is, at best, setting ourselves up for disappointment and, at worst, inviting disaster. And we struggle with the worthiness issue. Do we deserve our joy, given our inadequacies and imperfections? What about the starving children in the war-ravaged world? Who are we to be joyful? If the opposite of scarcity is enough, then practicing gratitude is how we acknowledge that there is enough and that we're enough. I'm just going to pause for a minute. The reason I think this is really important is because from that place of wholeness, we can consider devotion and, and um, prayer. And I really think that a foundation of human basic goodness and wholeness is a really important first step in, in our spiritual process. So I use the word practicing because the research participants spoke of tangible gratitude practices more than merely having an attitude of gratitude or feeling grateful. In fact, they gave specific examples of gratitude practices that included everything from keeping gratitude journals and gratitude jars to implementing family gratitude rituals. She says, I learned the most about gratitude practices and the relationship between, between scarcity and joy that plays out in vulnerability from the men and women who had experienced some of the most profound losses or survived the greatest traumas. These included parents whose children had died, family members with terminally ill loved ones, 
and genocide and trauma survivors. One of the questions I'm most often asked is don't you get really depressed talking to people about vulnerability and hearing about people's darkest struggles? My answer is no, never. That's because I've learned more about worthiness, resilience, and joy from those people who courageously shared their struggles with me than from any other part of my work. And nothing has been a greater gift to me than the lessons I learned about joy and light from people who have spent time in sorrow and darkness. I want to um, ask a question because it seems like in the Gurdjieff tradition and in other traditions, it seems like there's a certain value that's given to suffering. Like, oh, if we suffer, certainly the Hasidic tradition and, you know, other traditions, it's like if we suffer, that keeps us awake, that keeps us closer to God. So where is the place uh, for suffering? You know, do we create unnecessary suffering? Could it simply be that if we just embrace what is, There'll be plenty of ups and downs for us to surrender to and to practice with. Or do we sometimes look for drama and and what what this woman Lalit Thomas calls luxury suffering? Do we generate extra suffering about things in our lives that aren't really the kind of suffering that we're talking about that will deepen our spiritual practice? Um, this may not be relevant to most people in the room, but I think if, if one has experience with a teacher or a guide, spiritual teacher or guide, that they, I think they do sometimes intentionally put the student into a situation of their own creation that to relate with their own suffering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it can look like it, you know, it got created. I mean, it really is your, you know, it really is just getting you in touch with what's happening anyway. And it certainly does seem that life provides plenty of suffering. (laughs) Well, just what you just said reminded me of this story. So one time I was asked to cook this meal for a lot of people, and it was very specific. And um, our teacher was like, he just was like letting out all the stops. Like, I want this, and I want this French fries, and I want these hamburgers and I want you to offer everyone this you know it was a really complicated meal and what I saw was that I got really nasty with the servers and with the people who were uh, putting out who were fulfilling the serving of the meal and everything like that 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 under that much pressure I, I I didn't like what I saw about myself and, and Lee had intentionally put me in that situation. And then I remember going to him and being like, I'll never cook again. And uh, maybe I should just leave. You know, it was like, it was like, whoa, you know, but I was so, uh, it was so hard for me to see that part of me that I had done this under pressure. I mean, you know, it's all relative, right? So, and, you know, and those people that I was short with are my good friends and loved ones. And but seeing those pieces of myself when under pressure was hard, you know, and instead of just acknowledging, Lee was very big on like, if you were, if you were late for something, I, I remember another student just came and was like, because uh, when he was cooking, he would offer people could help him 
cook and and sometimes I got to help and this one gentleman had been invited was visiting from Germany had been invited to help cook and was late and our teacher really did not like you know he expected you to be on time and the gentleman just came up and was like I'm late what do you want you know what do you want me to do and he didn't like have a whole story and oh you know this and that and you know he just was with what it was he was late. He had dropped the ball on the thing and let's go forward. And um, it was very impactful because it was no excuses, no complaints, no, he just, and it was done. And there were other things like that where people had challenges that they met or did not meet. And, um, and I really think her teaching about shame and shame resistance is so important because you could collapse in shame when you see things about yourself under suffering, or you can choose to keep going forward, not deflect, but be grateful. Like that's one of the things I put that I'm grateful for that, that I'm doing this talk, you know, even though I, I'm like, I'm crazy. I have to go away in two days and I have tons of work and, you know, why did I say yes to this? And, but it's like, okay, I, I'm creating this opportunity for myself and you're all joining me. And I appreciate that. Joy comes to us in moments, ordinary moments. We risk missing out on joy when we get too busy chasing down the extraordinary Scarcity culture may keep us afraid of living small, ordinary lives, but when you talk to people who have survived great losses, it is clear that joy is not a constant. Without exception, all the participants who spoke to me about their losses and what they missed most spoke about ordinary moments. If I could come downstairs and see my husband sitting at the table and cursing at the newspaper, if I could hear my son giggling in the backyard. My mom sent me the craziest texts. She never knew how to work her phone. I'd give anything to get one of those texts right now. So finding joy in the ordinary, I think, is really important. And it's a thread through all the cultures, you know, finding the divinity that exists in everyday life. And, um, I also was really surprised. I had the gift of helping a friend who was dying of cancer. We were sitting with her around the clock when she was dying, and there was so much joy in 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 the room. It was surprising to me. You know, I fell asleep for a couple hours. I woke up, and I just felt this pervading joy. And she had a young daughter, and you know, there was definitely loss there, but there was joy in that transition to death. And, and it's like, there's joy in each day of our lives and there's joy in, in the transitions and the ending of life. And I think it's we who turn the spigot off and on, you know, and decide what is a joyful thing and what is not. And a, another thing that people spoke about who had survived tragedy was be grateful for what you have. When I asked people who had survived tragedy how we can cultivate and show more compassion from people for people who are suffering, the answer was always the same. Don't shrink away from the joy of your child because I've lost mine. Don't take what you have for granted. Celebrate it. Don't apologize for what you have. Be grateful for it. 
and share your gratitude with others. Are your parents healthy? Be thrilled. Let them know how much they mean to you. When you honor what you have, you're honoring what I lost. And don't squander joy. We can't prepare for tragedy and loss when we turn every opportunity to feel joy into a test drive for despair. We actually diminish our resilience. Yes, softening into joy is uncomfortable. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's vulnerable. But every time we allow ourselves to lean into joy and give in to those moments, we build resilience and we cultivate hope. The joy becomes part of who we are. And when bad things happen, and they do happen, we are stronger. You know, it's like we don't, uh, all the time we spend protecting ourselves from the joy is not going to, you know, uh, make it any better. She, she interviewed a man whose wife had died, and he said he had spent years, like, steeling himself against the possible loss of his wife. And then when once she had passed, it wasn't any... It hadn't made it any less of a painful thing for him. And then he said how he regretted that spending all that time just like preparing himself. So when we feel grateful, we come closer to God. Even if you do not use the word God, even if you discard the idea of a personal God as Buddhists do, you come closer to light, to the whole to universal energy, to love. The natural way of progressing is by becoming increasingly happy and thereby feeling increasingly grateful. Gratitude is the normal natural path. The rest is the perverseness of the mind. Gratitude leads to love, but not to demanding love, like a hunter's love for his game. Do not confuse begging love with fulfilling love. The latter springs from gratitude. And how can you feel grateful if you are frustrated? You are unable to feel grateful to life, to fate, to the world, but above all to yourself. Yes, grateful to yourself. You know that you do not love yourself, and this is the root of the problem. So all these wise traditions, they keep talking about the need to have self-compassion and self-love as part of our journey, that we can't love others as completely until we love ourselves and that we can't feel that gratitude until we let it in. And that was something that I always felt from our teacher. If I got fired from a job, because for 15 years I lived in the community with a lot of people. And so there'd be times you didn't do the job well, or you got repositioned to another job, or there was lots of moments where I could have just crumbled in, in like self-hatred, but there were so many, so many messages of love and acceptance around me that I really had to rest in those. And that was completely connected to being able to receive what we would call divine influence, to know and feel the divine that is around us. I think you cannot do that if you are shut down in, in our own shame and, and um, 
judgment. What I just read from was a jump into life. So this is a, a teacher named Arnaud Desjardins. Mm-hmm. He was from France. Um, he did some films of Tibetan Buddhists. He was a filmmaker originally. He studied the East Indian traditions and the Tibetan Buddhist traditions, and he connected it to Christianity as well. And his whole premise was you needed to say yes to life. So you say yes to all of it. And, and that, I think, is that connection to gratitude. That is saying yes to life. Whatever life is presenting us, we continually say yes. The only way you can open up is through the most magical word of all, the supreme mantra, yes. Listening is the ears, yes. Looking is the eyes, yes. Smelling is the noses, yes. Tasting is the yes of the tongue and the palate. Touching is the yes of sensation. The only way you can open up is through yes. Someone knocks at the door and you decide to welcome him. You say come in or yes. Refusing to open up is the same as saying no. The teaching I'm trying to pass on are wholly based on these two words. Yes is the path of human and spiritual fulfillment from the beginning level to the ultimate level in perfect continuity. And no is always anti-religious. It's not talking about when you say no, you know, as a boundary. Actually, Brene Brown uh, talks about if you, you need to have boundaries in order to actually be truly generous. And so you're not having resentment. You have to know when to say no. But saying yes to life, he says it's 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 easier to say no. He says you could do another exercise where you say no to everything. He said that one's easier. You know, that's typical of our egos to say no, no, no. We want to be woken up. We want to be awake. So we're, we're looking for some help. The alarm clock to wake us up. <laughs> but I think definitely in my spiritual practice at times, I have totally just resisted that choice. Like, even though I'm making that choice, I'm another part of me is saying like, no, you know, don't bother me. Don't ask that of me. So there's a yes and a no. To be grateful, it takes a conscious effort. Yeah. I always, you know, I have to think of being grateful. It's not automatic. Yeah. The no is automatic. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that doing like physical things, like some people engage meditation, you know, gratitude practices really help on an ordinary level. And then they translate onto a deeper level. I just recently experienced this. I really went through a deep depression and the only way I could get past it and get beyond it was to start writing a gratitude list. And being grateful for the things that I have in life. And it pulled me out of it. And I have to continue to do that all the time to make me realize that, you know, that I have to stay in the moment and I have to be so grateful for all the beautiful things that I have in life. Because I can easily go to the other side. Yeah. Easily be taken to a dark spot dark place so it's um powerful if you embrace it yeah and it takes a little bit of time right Mm -hmm. like 
if you just take that little bit of time and write them, write them down. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I, I figured out a way to set yourself up for gratitude and ask for help. Yeah. I figured out 40 years ago, and someday I'll have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so you haven't done it yet. You just have the plan, huh? Right? Watch out. The universe might make it so you have to, right? Yeah. 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 So we're, de- we're dependent on each other. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's true. So maybe if men learn how to ask directions you know, <laughs> or, or be gra- gratitude, express gratitude, we'll, we'll learn how to do the direction thing, ask for help, and be more vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. First time I ever heard of a gratitude list was from uh, a kid. You know, I work in a residential treatment center for teenage girls who've been going through an unbelievable trauma. And this kid, she had been abandoned when she was a year or two old. I think she'd been in the foster care system since then. Her whole life comes in one day and just starts telling me about this little gratitude list that she had been writing. But like she was so into it, genuinely grateful for just, I can't remember what they were, but like just real simple things. And we just completely take for granted. It just really made an impact on me. So many of us, it seems, engage in subtle complaining. It doesn't have to be overt. It's just a little thing. Like, it's such a bother that something is happening. Somebody is... Yeah. <laughs> or some last night was complaining that he had to go into town to go to the movies. <laughs> <laughs> With his friends, you know. <laughs> so this is from Thich Nhat Hanh. Our relationship with other people are crucial to our happiness. Sometimes we treat others or ourselves badly because of habit energy. We should treat ourselves with respect, tenderness, and compassion. This is very important. If we know how to treat our bodies and feelings with respect, we will be able to treat other people with the same respect. This is the way we create peace, freedom, and happiness in the world. Every one of us is capable of doing this. We only need a little training. To have a friend who knows the practice is fortunate. With two people practicing, you can support each other in the practice of cultivating that energy called mindfulness. Every moment of our daily lives can be used to cultivate mindfulness. Yes. The generic suffering that we we people endure um, is ninety uh, plus percent, ninety nine percent of all suffering. Conscious suffering is what I'd like to uh, mention, which of course Gurdjieff calls it. It's an extra effort. Conscious suffering. I'm not. I don't know. You spoke about it. You spoke about it. What is it? It's a big subject, and I. Couldn't say that I know the answer. It's big to presume. But I think at the root of it, the way it connects is bringing mindfulness. So if you bring mindfulness to to your activity and to the suffering that's happening on a small scale, Mm -hmm. you can then use that suffering to awaken 
we need a jolt to, to get us out of our thing. And so if we build through mindfulness and through embracing consciously suffering or uncomfortable, even uncomfortability, then we bring mindfulness. If we pay attention to how we speak to people, it's embracing what is, or it's embracing the suffering to kind of, to awaken the machine, you know, like uh, saying yes. Yeah. Saying yes. And, um, our teacher had a few little practices, like, um, he didn't use dishwashers. So he wanted us to wash our dishes by hand and he didn't use air conditioners even when he was driving in, in hot countries in the summer. And he didn't, yeah, well, he didn't, he didn't use conveniences to take the edges off of things. And that didn't mean that he wasn't relaxed and he would go to the movies. He would, he would definitely do activities. It wasn't like this, uh, unrelenting in a way it was unrelenting, but it wasn't, it wasn't like masochistic, you know, it was just like, okay, I'm going to use the environment or suppose someone around you expresses negativity or provokes in you a certain kind of reactivity. Well, then you would use that. You would use, oh, why, why am I reacting to this person? Instead of just like avoiding them or shutting them down, you'd engage in that uh, uncomfortability. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's what they've done. I said, go deeper. Into yeah, exactly. So you're just bringing that mindfulness. And I think all the great teachers do that. They're saying, and then, and so the gratitude is the same way. So I think it's, it's the flip side of it. It's like, what can I, what can I say yes to? What can I bring gratitude to constantly in my, in my life so that I am feeding that awakening and feeding I want something else. That which survives death or the Sufis talk about like creating essence mm-hmm. habits. So it's like, how can I build gratitude every day so that it's, it's a, it's a habit. So I'm not like, Oh God, I've got to remember to do that. But it's like, Oh yeah, I'm grateful for that. Well, we're grateful. We feel the joy. Yeah. So let's go in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But some, for some of us, that's really threatening to feel the joy. So not only the joy, but you can be grateful for, I don't say the bad things, some bad things. You can still be grateful for that lesson or whatever you want to call it. Because it's not all, you're not always grateful for just the joy. Right. But you can also be grateful for those things that happen. Yeah. Brene Brown calls it embracing the suck. It's like, you know, because it's not like, oh, I'm so happy that this is wrong with it. You know, it's like, Oh, you know, I have to do this thing and I don't want to do this thing maybe, but I'm embracing it full on. I'm saying yes to it. One of the worst things that happened to me in my life ended up being the best thing that could have happened to me. I didn't see it then. I wallowed in it, you know, had pity on myself. But then 20, 30 years down the road, I was grateful that all that Really, my the past happened to me because I wouldn't be here, the person I am today, if it wasn't for my wreckage of my past. What I thought was so bad that happened to me ended up being the gift that turned my life around. The awareness of it didn't come right away. Yeah. 
you know, it took a lot of study process and time to <clears throat> awaken to like, wow, that was a gift. For me, I have to remind myself like, so I can't just like wallow in shame. In the years of being with kids, I would see parents like they have an argument with their kids and then the kid just wanted to be connected. And the parent would be like shut down in shame that they yelled at their kid. or something. And the kid would be like, hey, I just want you to be connected to me. And when I had my own child, it was like, stop feeling the shame, step forward into the relationship. It's that choice all the time. Okay, I could just feel ashamed about the things I've done, or I can just keep being grateful and moving forward. Be grateful that that the universe is giving me this chance. So thank you for sharing. Anyone else? Yeah. I was going to say, I think with aging, um, the inevitable breakdown of the body, you know, I just find myself being really grateful for being out of pain when I had, you know, after a period of had, having had constant pain and taking a walk and actually just like, really feeling, just feeling the sun shining down on me and, you know, the breeze blowing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it gets to be that, you know, yeah. <laughs> that um, simple. Being, being grateful. It's something where I was talking about that. We don't like wake up in the morning usually and go, oh, I'm grateful that my feet work this morning, you know? <laughs> or instead, we're like, oh, my elbow, or oh, my, you know, it's like, but we only notice when it's not, you know, working. Right. Except if we cultivate that. Yeah. Well, I mean, every single tradition. Um, thinks that a human, a human form, presented as a human being, is the most extraordinary gift. Yes. I mean, there's yeah. nothing greater at, at, at this moment. Yeah. Especially, I think, that I'm sure we all have, we've experienced death, sickness, and things with people, so it brings home so hard. Yeah. How grateful we are to be. Yeah. Every day. Mm-hmm. Let's just take a moment of silence and and be with that. Thank you. I think um, another valuable thing to talk about with gratitude is how it is expressed in the different traditions. Some traditions use music. Some use prayer, some use poetry, some use dance. Because I think when we feel it, it's more powerful if we intentionally express it in some way. We take it from in here and then we make it powerful and make it real. So I think we've all found ways. My teacher um, used to sing in, in bands and write music. He used music and he used celebratory times and prayers and um, sharing food together. You know, they were all really tangible times that we would come together and express gratitude. I think the world could use so much more of that. And sacred art was another way that he would make manifest his gratitude. He felt like these things 
were no longer appreciated in the cultures they came from. And it was very important to him to make sure they got to people and places that could empower them and appreciate them. Yeah. And use Mm -hmm. them. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs)